Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, Bob. Oh, I was waiting on to see you here. We got Matt and Jill, too. I wasn't going to say anything. Like, <laughs> I was just looking over there. Are you going to say it or not? Yeah. Uh, we are picking up our study of the end times. We are posting this a little bit later than usual, but that's because things have been a little crazy recently. I mean, around the holidays, they generally are. But uh, we are continuing our study tonight, discussing the rapture, and we're going to begin in John 14. So... As you're turning in your Bibles to John 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, I want to very, very briefly go over what we talked about last time. So we were talking about the tribulation last time. Uh, we discussed how it's part of the Jewish program rather than the church age program. So the rapture of the church, as I'm going to demonstrate tonight, takes place before the tribulation. It's a time for the Jews to repent and come back to the Lord and to receive Jesus as their Savior. There's going to be a great revival period that Paul talks about in Romans 11. And uh, the tribulation period is talked about in Daniel 9 uh, as the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, it's going to be a seven-year period uh, that's going to be uh, based on a covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. He's going to break that covenant halfway through, and that will begin a time known as Jacob's Trouble. Uh, in rabbinic thought, this will be a time of great judgment on earth as the Messiah draws closer and they called it the Shevle Mashiach, uh, the footsteps of the Messiah, or the birth pangs of the Messiah. And then we talked about how in the Old Testament there were festivals that served as types of end times events. We talked about Yom Kippur and the days leading up to Yom Kippur called the Days of All. And then lastly, we talked about Luke 12 and Matthew 25, which hint at the idea of a rapture, even though it's not explicitly revealed. So in these places... Jesus is talking to Jewish believers who will come to faith in the tribulation. But in Luke 12 and in Matthew 25, it talks about uh, the wedding, the bridegroom and the bride. And the bride has already been taken, uh, secured and brought into heaven whenever the people who are mentioned in Luke 12 and Matthew 25 come to faith. And then, of course, if you look at those passages, it discusses a judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation. So at the end of the tribulation, the bride is going to be coming down out of heaven. The bride's not on earth waiting for Jesus to come and take her home. The bride has already gone up to be with him. And so that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 14, because there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming, which will be made clear as we look at some texts today. So in chapter 14, verses one through three, John says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, this is very different than the second coming as depicted in Revelation. And so the next reference we're going to tackle is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This is describing the battle of Armageddon, and it depicts the coming of the Lord. Starting in verse number 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and a white horse and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, 
And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that depiction of the return of Christ is quite different than what we see in John 14. In John 14, he's talking to believers and he's saying that when I come, I'm going to take you so you can be with me where I am. Now, where am I going to be? I'm going to my father's house Mm. and you're going to go there with me too. I'm going to come back and get you to take you there after I prepare a place for you. So it's very clear that that's describing in effect where Jesus comes down to take the church out of the world to heaven. But in Revelation 19, we don't see that at all. Instead, we see heaven opening and Jesus coming out of heaven, and there's already people with him. And those people are described in uh, saintly terms. They have white garments. They're riding on horses with them. Um, If you were to read earlier in the chapter, it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, the Mm -hmm. marriage supper of the Lamb. And that takes place in heaven. So the door of heaven is opened for the first time in John 14 for believers to go up. It's closed. Mm-hmm. And for seven years on earth, there's judgment. For seven years in heaven, there is a great time of celebration and reward giving. Mm-hmm. At the end of that time period, the door of heaven opens up again. And that's when Christ comes down to judge. So the rapture is us going up. And the second coming is Jesus coming down. And we are with him at that point. In fact, if you look closely and you study the book of Revelation, as we will, verse by verse, eventually, when we finish this introductory series that we're doing, you see heaven opening up twice. You see it in Revelation 4, verse 1. So it says that John was in the spirit in the Lord's day. And he hears a voice saying, come up here. And he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And notice, Mm -hmm. if you notice, which reminds us of, First Corinthians 15 and mm-hmm. first Thessalonians four. And then he was immediately in heaven to see the vision of the throne room. But it talks about heaven being opened and him being taken up. Now, some people who are pre-trib and who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, they would argue whether or not that is about the rapture. But I don't think that it is a coincidence that from that point on in the book, the church is in heaven mm-hmm. and we have crowns being given to the saints who've overcome. And we have them waiting for a time of judgment where they will come down. And then we see in Revelation 19, the door opens up again. The second time heaven's open. And that time it's open, we are coming out. So when we think about the return of the Lord, we often conflate the rapture and the second coming, but we need to properly distinguish between the two. I would rather look at it as I think Tim LaHaye has said before, um, he's now with the Lord, uh, but he used to say there are two phases to the second coming. Mm-hmm. And the first phase is the rapture. That begins the day of the Lord, as Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5. So everything is triggered by the rapture. Okay, He's taken his church out. Now he can pour out his wrath because his church, his bride, is out of harm's way. And then at the end, at the end of that time period, that's when he comes out of heaven with his bride. So that's the difference between the two. Now let's look at the purpose. So the purpose is obviously, as we saw in John 14, to claim the bride, uh, to keep her out of harm's way. Um, and it's also to give the bride her glorified body. 
So if you'll look with me in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll uh, start in verse 51 and we'll read through 57. Does somebody want to read that for me? 1 Corinthians 15? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the, la for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the, the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the perishable, ah, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the mortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. Thank you, Scott. So notice it says in verse number 51, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. So there's going to be a generation that doesn't die. And so it, it wouldn't be a resurrection in the traditional sense of the term. They're not going to die and then be brought back from the dead. There will be a, a living generation that is changed, as he says, in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, I think that the rapture is taught in the writings that uh, record the teachings of Christ before Paul was even called. As we just looked at John 14, I mean, that's describing the rapture. Uh, so in a sense, the disciples had access to that information, but did they understand it? I don't think they clearly understood it. I think that that was for further revelation mm. to clear up. And I think that's what Paul's referring to here. I think that if you were to look at a number of passages uh, in the New Testament, a number of passages in the Old Testament, all before Paul, I think that the rapture is there. I just don't think that it was spelled out. They right. didn't they didn't have the the outlines and charts that we so conveniently sure. have at our disposal today. And that was something that Paul had the amazing privilege of explaining to the church. Mm -hmm. But it says in verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Now the last trump is often mistaken for the last in the series of trumpets that is mentioned in Revelation. So you have the trumpet judgments right. which follow the seals, and then after the trumpets you have the bowls. Okay, so some people will say that the last trump is that last trumpet. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's when the rapture is going to happen, they'll say. And this is fueled a, a view that you might call a mid-trib, okay, or, mm -hmm. or maybe pre-wrath, and we'll talk about those different views in a moment. But the last trump is not a reference to the last in a series of trumpets. It is a catchphrase for a particular festival, which is known as uh, Rosh Hashanah. Mm. So the last trump was another title for that festival, the right. festival of trumpets. So if we were to remind ourselves a little bit, refresh our memory here, we talked about these Messianic festivals and in order, first you have Teshuvah, yeah. which is a, a time or season of repentance that leads up to the main fall festivals. And then you get to Rosh Hashanah, the last trump, which pictures the rapture, the resurrection. Okay, starting with that festival, which, by the way, it's a two-day festival because no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, when that festival um, begins, it kicks off what is known as the days of all, uh, the, the Yamim Noraim, the terrible days, which are a picture of the day of the Lord. 
which is that period going from the rapture to the return of the Lord when he sets up his kingdom, as we saw in Revelation 19. Uh, Yom Kippur would be at the tail end of that period. That's when he's going to come back and you're going to have the sheep and go judgments. You're going to have a judgment of Israel. Uh, basically, anybody that has survived through that tribulation period, they will be judged when the Lord comes back with his saints. After that, you have the Festival of Tabernacles, which is celebrated. The Festival of Tabernacles pictures the millennium where God in his son Jesus is tabernacling once again in the presence of mankind. He's in the temple. The Holy of Holies is filled with the glory once more. Then you have the great day, which follows tabernacles, and that pictures the great final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And then lastly, after the great day, you have the eighth conclusion, which is the eternal state. Mm -hmm. And so this is a beautiful picture laid out for the Jews typologically, which gives us all the details that we need to know. Now, of course, the New Testament elaborates and it brings out this meaning in a way that if you just had the festivals, you probably wouldn't get all that information. But having the New Testament now, having people like Paul who explained these mysteries, uh, we can put this in the proper order. So the last Trump refers to the festival of trumpets, which is at the very beginning of this time period known as the day of the Lord or the terrible days. And Joel chapter two talks about that. So if you mm-hmm. want to go back and review, you can actually see all these festivals in Joel chapter two. It talks about the last trump, the trumpet being blown. It talks about the fast day, which the only feast that demanded a fast was Yom Kippur. So, so you have these festivals that are alluded to in Joel chapter two. Mm. So I, I really recommend as we've uh, talked about before, and I've used his book as a reference whenever teaching on the festivals. Ken Johnson's book, Ancient Messianic Festivals, does a really good job of making a case for the pre-trib rapture from these festivals. So I think he does a wonderful job doing that. But 1 Corinthians 15 explains that we will receive as as members of the church glorified bodies at the rapture. Now, what I think is interesting, and I mentioned this um, whenever I taught this last. So this is the second time teaching this. And whenever I teach something twice, I do that for a living every single day. I'll teach the same lesson three times Mm -hmm. to high school students. And sometimes I vary it up a little bit, but this is one of those things that I don't want to leave out. And I mentioned it last time I taught it was that Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they did not have imperishable bodies then. Mm. Now, if you look carefully at the text, it distinguishes between the body that Adam was created with and the body we will receive, which is patterned after Christ's resurrected body. Uh, it says in verse number 44 that our, our body, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual but that which is natural and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of heaven, which is the last Adam. So what he's saying here is when Adam was created, it was a natural body. Now it wasn't a corrupt body. So when God made Adam, he was good. He looked upon creation, including Adam's body, and says, Behold, it is very good. There was no sin nature in Adam or Eve. However, they were not glorified. So what distinguishes between a body that's not subject to death initially Mm. 
and a glorified body. Well, I'll tell you, Adam was capable of sin. Right. He was capable of choosing between life and death represented by those trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He made his choice. Now, if he would have chosen the tree of life, I make the assumption, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I would assume that Adam would have, if not immediately, he would eventually received his glorified body. I think that Adam would have been born again. I don't think that he was born again when he was first made. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that being born again is a choice on our part. We have to receive Jesus as our Savior. When Adam was made, he looked up and he saw God, and God promised him that he would have a wonderful existence for all eternity, and what he gave him, the Garden of Eden, the meaning over creation, that was all a foretaste of something even better to come. And everything that Adam had around him, all the joys and privileges that he was enjoying from the outset, they would become permanent if he chose to obey. Now, if he chose to disobey, on the other hand, he would lose those privileges. Thankfully, Jesus had backup plan, um, which was already in play. It's not really a backup plan. Yeah, you know, it was, yeah. it's a way of speaking. Whenever yeah, yeah. we're talking about foreknowledge, it's it's difficult to use the right yeah. words. But um, it was something that from eternity past, God had set aside because he was very well aware in his foreknowledge that Adam would give into yeah. sin. And so God was not... Uh, blindsided by it. But whenever Adam sinned, he at that point now was depraved. So he had mm -hmm. a corrupt body um, that was mortal, that would eventually die. Uh, you were taken from the dust and you would return to the dust and he would pass on his mortal flesh as well as the sin nature, which goes along with that, to his offspring. It's almost, so It's almost like he could have made, made him already depraved, right? But he didn't so that we would have something to look forward to. You know I, what I mean? Like, I, I think that God also, God doesn't make anything bad. Ah, that's a good point. He too. makes yeah. everything good. And, and so there is something, and listen, if you hear this and you're a Calvinist, you're probably not going to like what I'm about to say, but that <laughs> there is something good in a man, uh, even after they fall. When I yeah. say something good, I mean they're not completely cut off no. from the light of God. They're certainly not completely cut off from the love of God. So there's something in man that can be appealed to. Satan, on the other hand, and the fallen angels, it appears that when they fell, I mean they were completely cut off to where they're pretty much sealed in their rebellion. Right. Repentance is beyond them. It's not like that with man. And even Cornelius, who wasn't a believer, wasn't born again, didn't have the Holy Spirit. I mean, he repents he sees the truth in the Old Testament scriptures. He worships the God of Israel. He prays and, and God recognizes yeah. that piety and rewards it by further revelation. But that of course, and then say, you know, that Cornelius. yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 10. 10. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, we are absolutely uh, corrupt to our core. And so there is this tendency. It, really, I would say it, it's uh, the default setting of human nature is to wander from God and to rebel against God. Now, what it means in scripture, when it says no one seeks after God on their own, naturally they don't. So did Cornelius naturally seek after God? No, he was being pursued by the Holy spirit long before the angel appeared to him long before mm. Peter appeared to him long before he heard about the gospel, the Holy spirit's pursuing him and God pursues us in many ways. Um, I think that he pursues us through the beauty of his creation. Mm -hmm. um, I think when we see it, when we look up at the stars, uh, we are just amazed by that design and it makes us wonder, is there something more to us? Mm -hmm. You know, is there a person who made this and God uses that 
and and his his spirit to draw people in those situations where they're thinking about these things to encourage them to seek further information. I mean, it says that in, in Acts chapter, uh, is it 17 when they're on Mars Hill and Paul's preaching? He says, yeah. you know, God has established mankind and, and put mankind in, you know, exactly where they are. Yeah. And it says that God's not very far from any one of us. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. And it's his desire for us to grope after him in the dark. Mm-hmm. So he gives us enough light through his creation and through the conscience that we have. Mm-hmm. We're not completely cut off from that knowledge of right. God. And if we respond willingly to what we have, then he will, as he did with Cornelius, give us more. However, what many people do continually, um, and we do it from a very young age, is we take the knowledge we have and we we reject it. I mean, you know, we are in situations where we know, okay, A option is good. I should do that. B option is sinful. I don't need to do that, but I'm going to do it anyways. And we consistently rebel against God, and that's why we are all in need of a Savior. There's not a single person who has listened to their conscience every time and obeyed God every time, except Jesus. He's the only one who's sinless. So that's why we are very much desperately in need of a savior. But I, I do believe that if we are, if we are listening to what God is saying to us and we're being drawn by the Holy spirit and willingly conceding to God and we're going in that direction, um, and we're being prepared by him. I think that whenever the gospel is shared with this, we will listen to it. Cornelius doesn't say, uh, no, Peter, I don't believe that. Okay. I'm going to stick with the old Testament. I mean, mm-hmm. he's been prepped by the old Testament. He's been prepped by, you know, his, his prayer and his piety. But whenever the gospel comes, he is ready to believe. Uh, but anyways, that's kind of an aside, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but the point Sorry. is yeah. the bodies that we will one day have will be glorified and incapable of corruption. That means we will not, be able to sin. I once had a professor who said, well, buddy, doesn't that bother you? I mean, I know you believe in free will. And uh, he knew that I did. I was writing my paper on like, Calvinism and, and I was making a case that free will is something scripture clearly teaches. But uh, I said, you know what? I don't have a problem with my free will being taken away from me one day because um, I'm freely choosing that for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's not taking it away from me. I'm placing it in his hands. I'm giving it to him. I'm giving it to him right? And and I and I want him to take it now. Amen. Like the opportunity for me to sin, the temptations that beset me, I don't want it at all. I'm like, God, take it all away. Uh, give me that glorified body so I don't struggle with the flesh anymore. But that's the point, I think, that God put Adam in a situation where Adam could say the same. God, I want to give it to you. Right. You know, I want you to be my savior and I want you to be the one in charge. And um, I think that when we do that, then... Um, that's that's who we are from that point on. When we're born again, the real me, the real Scott, the real Matt, the real Jill, like we are born again people. So we are righteous, not just in a legal sense, mm-hmm. but in a very real sense that I can understand. I can't understand the mystery of it, but in a real supernatural way, my spirit has been remade. It's been reworked. Yeah, There's continuity. My personality hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But I'm holy now in the eyes of God. God can literally look at me and say he is a saint now. But since I'm still in my mortal flesh and, and I have a sin nature that goes along with that, I still struggle with it. And whenever I give into it, I am not being myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like whenever I get real hungry, my wife's like, buddy, you're really grumpy. You're not being yourself right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, we often as Christians fail to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And whenever we do that, we're not living as born again people. 
we're living like the old man. And that's the new man mm-hmm. and the old man dichotomy that Paul talks about so much yep. in the New Testament. But whenever we receive our glorified bodies at the rapture, we will no longer have to struggle with that old man anymore. And praise God for it. All right, now, so that's the purpose of the rapture, to keep us from the wrath and to give us our glorified bodies. So we're complete now. I mean, God has a two-part process in saving people um, to make it real simple. And it is to wash someone's spirit clean when they're born again, when they're initially saved. And even when their body dies, like we are fundamentally spirit, are we not? Mm -hmm. What is really me? Is it my body or is it my spirit? It's my spirit. However, God never designed human beings to go without a body forever, did he? Mm -hmm. So the people who are in heaven, who are disembodied spirits, they are clean and holy in God's eyes. However, they're longing for those bodies because they were made for them. And that's part of God's inheritance to those who are children, children of God. And so we'll get that at the rapture. Now, let's look, and we might wrap it up with this. I don't know. We'll see. But let's look at Luke 17, Luke 17, 26 through 37. And to, you know, for the sake of time, uh, somebody turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, and uh, prepare to read that. So I'll get Luke 17, 26 through 37. Um, now, in this passage, we have a discussion on the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and it talks about there being two who are sleeping and one being taken and the other mm-hmm. left, and two being working in the field and one being taken and the other left, and we'll get to that in a moment. So we have what I believe are rapture passions. Now, not all dispensationalists believe this. They, some of them believe that the taking that we're about to read about and Luke 17 is talking about taking away to judgment. Uh, I'm going to say the amount of rain we've had lately. It's definitely like the days of Noah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, don't Man. it? For sure. I'm ready for mm. it to be gone or to turn to snow. That would be great. Mm. But anyways, let's look at uh, Luke 17, 26. It says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the son of man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom and rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the son of man is revealed. And that day he shall be upon the mountaintop or he which shall be upon the mountaintop. Sorry, guys, my eyes are really bad right here. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now, there are two different phases of the day of the Lord that are described here. I could preach a whole sermon on this. I intend to someday. But in Luke 17, we have the days of Noah and we have the days of Lot. Now, if you compare accounts, if you were to take Luke 17 and line it up with, let's say, uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, you're going to notice that the days of Lot, what he describes here about someone being on the housetop and not going down and taking their stuff, but to flee immediately that that is talking about the persecution of the Antichrist halfway through the tribulation. So we know that because Matthew 24 gives us that parallel information. 
The days of Noah, on the other hand, is a universal phenomenon that's not limited to the land of Judea. If you look at Matthew 24, that warning that the Antichrist is coming for you, it is to those who are in Judea. It's to the Jewish people okay, who are going to bear the brunt of the Antichrist's wrath. The days of Noah, on the other hand, is everybody. So what we have when we discuss the rapture is this subject of imminency. Imminency means you know, it's on the cups. It could happen at any time. So in the days of Noah, okay, they were all going about their business and the flood came upon them suddenly. So sudden judgment is a theme we see again and again when we're talking about the rapture and the tribulation. Uh, we see it here in Luke 17 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, but the days of Noah is referring to judgment coming upon the earth after the rapture happens. So just as Noah and his family got in the ark and they were taken out of harm's way and then wrath was poured out, Christians will be taken out and then the wrath is poured out. However, the days of Lot is referring to something different. If you are part of the days of Lot, then you have been left behind. That's not a good place. You are a person who is perhaps a Jew that did not believe. The rapture happens. The two witnesses appear, which we'll discuss in Revelation. They preach a message of repentance and you do repent and believe in Jesus. And so halfway through the tribulation, when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple and the Antichrist goes in there and claims to be God, this applies to you. Okay? He's hmm. saying, flee immediately and don't waste any time. So you see two phases of the day of the Lord. And you can might even, and I don't want to read too much into the text, but I think it's quite interesting that when it talks about the days of Noah, it says in that day. So if you're looking at, or sorry, uh, in that night, look with me at verse number, let's see. I'm using a different Bible today than ordinarily. But in uh, verse number 34, it says, I tell you in that night. So he talks about two men in one bed. Then in verse 35, he talks about two women grinding together. And then in verse 36, he talks about two men in the field. Those are different times of the day, but it's all happening at the same time. So what this is showing is, first off, the earth is not flat, okay? It's round, and there are different what? time zones, okay? <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you're a flat earther, I hate to, to burst your <laughs> bubble here, but... Um, the rapture is going to happen and some people are going to be sleeping and some people are going to be awake. Okay. And they're going to be doing their daily labors and some are going to be taken and some are going to be left behind. Two men in one bed. Yes. That is probably a reference to the common practice of bed sharing in ancient times. Okay. It has no homosexual connotation. I just want to point that out. Okay. I've heard, I've heard people try and make it. Yes. I've heard them try to do that too. And there's no warrant and whatsoever even, for it. Not to be, but even the next one about the women. I've heard that one yeah, as well. Because they're grinding grain. Because, grinding yeah, grain. But not, they leave the grain out. Yeah, exactly. Dear Lord, oh. we're talking about grinding grain. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> yeah, no. No, You're but right. it, it is something that has been brought up, but this is not talking about homosexual practices. Um, I actually read something interesting, and this is very awkward <laughs> when you think about it, based on all cultural practices. But in the 1800s, um, it, you know, it was still common in certain places. Uh, if a family member or a close friend Someone mm. that you know and you respect, let's say a preacher, okay, and they're traveling around and they need to stop and they need to stay the night at your place. You would sleep, sleep in your that bed. They would sleep in your bed and you would sleep in the bed with the person. Like everybody yeah. had a spot. Like, you know, you would, I mean, it was kind of crowded, but people would share the bed. Now, that seems, sounds extremely weird to us. Yeah. But back then it was just a That's measure of hospitality. 
you know, they didn't have any other room. You think about Little House in the Prairie, right? I mean, they had what in the in the beginning they had one room house. Yeah. So put up blankets and so you know it, it may seem weird to us. Yeah, it's not. I mean, but in ancient times, medieval times, bed sharing was a common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it is a definitely less awkward <laughs> nowadays, but it says in that night. Okay. So it really brings forward night. Yes. And when, and when it talks about the, uh, the two women grinding and the two men in the field, it, it doesn't mention daytime there. We obviously know that that's when they're doing it, but it really puts front and center in that night. And in fact, all the commentaries that I'm reading, they really seem to say like, this is definitely being emphasized in the Greek. It's, it's really pushing forward night on us. Why? Okay, because in a Jewish day, what comes first in their mindset? Nighttime. Okay, this corresponds to the days of Noah. So what happens first? The rapture. Okay, the days of Noah, they come into the ark. It's a universal phenomenon. Doesn't matter what your time zone is. Night will begin the day of the Lord. Okay, evening in the morning, the evening starts first. Mm. The night starts first and it begins with the rapture. However, as we're getting through the tribulation, halfway through, we reach daytime. Okay? Just as in the Jewish mindset, the night comes first and then there's the day. It talks about the days of Lot. And it mentions in verse 31, in that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. So we have a day and night. So if, if I could create a chart, the day of the Lord would be divided into the nighttime portion, which is commenced with the rapture, and the daytime portion which is going to revolve around this breaking of the covenant, Hmm. the antichrist breaking his covenant halfway through the seven year tribulation period, and then pursuing the Jews. And so in Luke 17, we have this idea of sudden judgment, uh, surprise coming upon the world and no, no definitive signs preceding it. Now that doesn't mean there are no signs at all. If you were to look at Matthew 24, it talks about earthquakes in, in diverse places. It talks about pestilence. It talks about um, famine, wars and rumors of wars. Mm-hmm. And it goes on. The budding of the fig tree, which yeah. I firmly believe is a reference to the nation of Israel. Sure. These are all signs that show summer is near. However, there is nothing that we can, we can say has to happen before the rapture happens. Right. So like right now, as we stand. I don't have to say, okay, well, the rapture can't happen yet correct? because all these things haven't happened. The rapture can happen any day. Yeah. And, and these other signs that uh, we read about in Revelation, they take place in the tribulation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's really only one thing that hasn't come yet, which is God made God. Exactly. But we're not even, sure when but even it, be, right? That's and right. Like, even it, the Bible does not give as a sign that the correct. rapture is about to happen. So could it happen before the rapture? Sure. Sure. Could it happen after? Yes. Equally possible. But the point is the rapture has always been imminent. True. Okay. We, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us the rapture is something that, um, we have to wait 2000 years for. Okay. So the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is something different different. and and the coming of the kingdom. Like can the millennium start tomorrow? No. No. Because the rapture hasn't happened. The tribulation hasn't happened. Antichrist hasn't signed the covenant with Israel. Okay, that's at least seven years off. Okay, so even if the rapture happens today, the covenant is signed today. You still got seven years before the millennium. So the second coming, Christ coming down in Revelation 19, it's not imminent. Mm -hmm. The rapture is imminent. 
So that again shows the difference between the two. Now, really the next question is, the remaining question is how much time is there between the two? Some people would say there's very little time. Okay, so you're going to go through a good chunk of the tribulation before the rapture happens, but that's problematic because that would mean there are signs preceding the rapture. If you say the rapture is certainly not pre-trib, if you say it's mid-trib, or some people will go as far as say it's post-trib, mm -hmm. well, you got to wait through the whole tribulation. Could the rapture happen today? No, it couldn't. Right. But doesn't the Bible depict it as an imminent event? It could happen at any time. Okay, he's like a thief breaking in in the night. That's right. You never know when it's going to happen. You can't actually say that about the rapture if you believe in a post-trib. Mm. Because there would have to be seven years with all of these seals and trumpets and bowls before we get there. Mm -hmm. So a person who believes in a pre-trib rapture, we can make sense of the biblical data. We can say, oh, well, here it's talking about an imminent event. It's a surprise. First Thessalonians 5, when it talks about uh, you know, they'd be saying peace and safety and then sudden destruction coming upon them. That's talking about the that's rapture. Right. As soon as the rapture happens, the floodgates open and the wrath of God is poured out. So that's talking about the rapture. But when it's talking about Revelation 19, the armies of the Antichrist are getting together. This is after seven years of very de detailed judgments mentioned. Mm. That's talking about the second coming. We can explain both sets of data. But if you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're stuck with these two conflicting ideas mm -hmm. that are impossible to reconcile with one another. Now, who's in 1 Thessalonians 5? I can read it. Matt's been patiently waiting. So read for us all those verses, Matt. So 5, all right. <clears throat> but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in for your, uh, you are you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together for him, with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing so initial observation just about verse 11 comfort yourselves with these words mm. now these words are meant to be encouraging if one interprets this to somehow teach a post-trib rapture where we have to go through this time of judgment you have a lot of problems but the first one would be it's not a very encouraging message no. when this is intended to be encouraging and I'll tell you why it's encouraging, because verse 9 tells us, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So this wrath that he's talking about, is it just any, any day? Any day we experience? Mm. Is it talking about hell? No. It's talking about the day of the Lord. There are people in hell today, but the day of the Lord still hasn't happened yet. Mm. So we are not appointed for that day of the Lord wrath, but rather we're appointed to salvation. Now, how will this salvation be accomplished? 
some people might say, well, you're going to you know, be saved through it somehow. Mm. Okay. But that's not what it's talking about because it says in verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should, sorry, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And if you were to study that phrase and you were to you know, do some cross-referencing, live together with him is a reference to receiving your glorified body. Mm. Now, when do we receive our glorified body? Read chapter four. Mm. It tells you that those who are asleep in Christ have already died. They get theirs first, but it's going to be very quick. Two phases in the twinkling of an eye where the dead in Christ rise first and then those who are alive, we are caught up together with him and with them. Mm. And we shall so live together with the Lord ever to be with him. So when it says here, we will be saved from the wrath to come, how will we be saved? Through the rapture, through this catching up event where we are given our glorified bodies and we are with all the saints that make up the church. So I would say this is probably the strongest passage teaching a preacher of rapture. I don't see how anybody can read it and not come away with that conclusion. And it also is a strong passage as I shared when I taught this last time. It's a strong passage teaching free grace. Because in verse 10, it says, who died for us, paying for our sins, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So this whole time he's saying, you are not of the night. You're not of the darkness. Like you're children of light. You're children of the day. You shouldn't be drunk with the things of the world. This is talking about spiritual drunkenness, but don't be drunk spiritually. Okay. Be awake, serve the Lord, honor him. Okay. Conform your mind to the word and not the world. Okay. Don't be carnal, be spiritual. Right. And if you're doing that, then you're a believer who's awake. Yeah. Okay. We talk about wokeness all the time in our culture. All right. True wokeness is a believer conformed to the word of God Mm -hmm. and who's watching for the coming of the Lord, Mm -hmm. anticipating it because they know if it comes now, they're in a good position to receive a reward. When they'll be found, they'll be found well done, good and faithful servant. But it says here that whether we wake or sleep, and every single commentary you read is going to say, oh, the sleeping there's talking about people who are already dead in Christ. No, it's not. This is uh. talk, not talking about physically dead believers. If you study the Greek, it's a completely different word than sleep used in chapter four to refer to those who are dead in Christ. Completely different word. It is used earlier in chapter five, though, when it talks about those who sleep in the night. Uh. It's talking about spiritual slumber. So he's saying whether you are spiritually awake as a believer or you're carnal and you're spiritually asleep as a believer, whether you're awake or asleep, you will live together with the Lord. Huh. Now that sounds like comfort right there. And a lot of people would say, oh, Paul, well, that just means you're giving them a license to sin. They, and they said that. They, they say and that that's what they yeah, And that's what right. they said to him in Romans. Yes. And he said, no. And, you know, he doesn't follow that up with, well, if they're not serving the Lord, they're not really saved. Right. He doesn't say that. He says, no, how can someone who's a truly experienced the grace of God, how can they psychologically tell themselves they're okay with living in sin? Mm. So the key to living a life that's faithful to God is knowing grace. Grace doesn't ever give us a motive to sin. Grace mm. gives us a motive to honor the Lord in our lives. It's only when a believer, a true believer stops reflecting on the grace of the Lord that they begin to sin. Right. If they're thinking of the grace of the Lord every day and truly appreciating it, that is the greatest motive to serve. And so that's what he's doing. And he's saying, listen, even if you sleep, okay, God is literally giving you a gift that is truly free. So free that even if you were to take it for granted, you're still going to be taken to be with him. Mm. Comfort yourself with this and use it as a motivation to honor him. Mm. And if you are a part of a church 
and you've been beaten down your salvation question constantly, when you hear something like this, it's refreshing. And you know what you want to do? You want to honor God in your life. Because you're free to honor God. I mean, when, when you're trapped in the bindings of religion and in, in works salvation or works assurance at the very least, you are not serving God with the joy that he intends for you to have. He doesn't want you to serve him as a mercenary. Mm. He wants you to serve him as a child of God who's been set free and you're accepted no matter what. Now, does that mean you should sin? Of course not. And that's what Paul dealt with. But I will tell you something as an aside here. If your preaching does not open you up to that objection, mm. you're not preaching the gospel right. Mm. Most people today would not hear a preacher in their exposition of the gospel and say, well, that just gives you a license to sin. Nobody would object to a, a sermon preached today by most evangelical right. pastors, but they objected like that to Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because he taught grace as it was meant to be taught. And so, you know what? When people accuse me of teaching that, oh, you're just saying there's a license to sin. When they say that to me, I'm like, I must be doing something right because the apostle Paul had the same accusation. But what that's saying is, even if you're sleeping, you'll be taken in the rapture. That doesn't mean there won't be shame. You're not going to yeah, hear well right. done, good and servant. You're not going to hear well done, good and faithful servant if you're not actually being a good and faithful servant. Right. Uh, but what this teaches is that Salvation is free. Um, justification, regeneration, having the Holy Spirit, and the rapture is assured to us. It's one of those salvation privileges that we should think about. We should talk about. And sadly, so many people today have cast it off right. or they've relegated it to the end of the tribulation where we have to experience all the wrath of God when the Bible clearly teaches that we were never appointed for it. That's for those who have not received the Lord as their mm -hmm. Savior. And it's a time to hopefully bring these people to repentance, which it will have a great effect on many people during that time and praise God for it. Amen. Uh, but that is the nature of the rapture. And we'll stop right there because we didn't get to this whenever the rest of the group was together. And I want to talk about the timing of the rapture more. There's more evidence in the Bible for a preacher of rapture than first Thessalonians five. That was just a taste of it. I think it's probably the strongest evidence, but there are some other verses that we'll look at uh, next time we, uh, take up this series. So thank you for listening. God bless you. And we hope that you'll return and listen to us again.